Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. No mercy for the Palestinians. Netanyahu has proposed Tony Blair as the humanitarian coordinator to oversee the final stages of the final solution for the Palestinian presence on the Mediterranean. And President Macron becomes the first Western leader to break ranks. Being accused by Netanyahu of lacking morality is like being told to sit up straight by the hunchback of Notre Dame. And on the day when 20 Israeli soldiers were killed by Hezbollah fire on the northern frontier, Israeli officials say openly on television, the all-out war with Lebanon seems inevitable. Fasten your seatbelts, it's going to be another bumpy night here on the mother of all talk shows. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. There seems little doubt that they are going for what they imagine the final solution of the Gaza problem. Uh, it didn't begin on October 7. I've just been looking at a plaque I was given in Gaza in 2010 for trying to break the siege on the territory, regular siege, starvation, cutting off of water and electricity, and of course, the regular massacre of thousands, mainly women and children. Some things never change. But it looks like they're going for broke, and they are working on the assumption that nobody is going to stop them, and they may be right about that. The breach with France is a significant one. It's all very well saying, as I do say myself, was it the 11,000th death that made Macron sit up and take notice? But that would be churlish because he is now a thorn in the eye of the other European leaders and an example to their public opinion that it is possible to move even the most resolute of governments, to a different position. And that is your job, and that is my job. We know uh, for sure that the Arab and Muslim leaders are not in a position to make them stop. Indeed, it turns out they're not even in a position to stop the flow of oil and weapons. It turns out they're not even in a position to stop the flow of oil to Israel across their own territories, even emanating from their own territories. They are not in a position to stop Israel using their airspace. They're not in a position to do much. I don't know if there was any 
belly dancing at the summit in Riyadh, but there might as well have been. Perhaps they could have belly danced in front of each other. So no help is going to be forthcoming, at least from the collective Arab and Islamic world. No help at all is going to come from the United States of America, not before Cornell West gets into the White House. In any case, it seems so far that the governments of Germany and the United Kingdom and Canada and the United States are immovable no matter what proportion of their public opinion is demanding that they move. This weekend, again, has been enormously impressive as the populations of virtually every country in the whole world mobilized in their tens, maybe in their hundreds of millions. And there seems no doubt that strategically, in the long term, politically, Israel has scored a massive own goal with the launching of what can only be described as frenzied, unhinged, genocidal attacks, even while their justification for any attack at all begins to lose steam. I have no doubt and no wish to downplay uh, the grievous blow uh, to the psyche of the people of Israel, their government, and their armed forces about what took place on October 7. After all, they had been told that the Israeli army was some kind of superpower. Uh, they had been told that the fence at Gaza was impenetrable, that if someone fluttered their eyes on the other side of it, Israel could record no and react to it. It's not their fault that their state, led by Netanyahu, took hours and hours to respond to the infiltration during the concentration camp breakout, which is what, in truth, October 7th was all about. In the fog of war propaganda, all kinds of allegations were made about the conduct of the infiltrators. But every day, it seems, the Israeli media itself, including, and but not excluding others, including the greatest of them, the paper of record in Israel, Haaretz, it seems that a significant number of the Israeli civilians who were killed on October 7 were killed by the Israeli armed forces themselves in their Hannibal-directed frenzy to kill anything that moved, to avoid the taking of hostages, which is exactly what the Hannibal Directive issued years ago by Netanyahu, was determined to stop because the cost of exchanging hostages has proved ex extremely expensive for Israel in the past. Footage emerged in the Israeli media of an Apache helicopter, maybe two, raining death and destruction on cars moving along a highway. In it, no one knew. Just blow that car away. Footage has emerged 
of the destruction of houses on the Kibbutzim, which can only have been caused by tank shells or by helicopter gunship shells. Even the Times of Israel, the gutter press in Israel, have conceded that there is no evidence of rape being used by the infiltrating Palestinian fighters. The 40 dead babies beheaded has also been acknowledged widely to have been a falsehood, the kind of falsehood that has fueled, even started many wars. But I'm not in any sense downplaying the pain suffered by the people of Israel, psychological pain, physical pain. But they've gone too far. So far as most of the world is concerned, they've gone far too far. So far as people who long supported them, defended them, like Macron, they have gone far too far. An eye for an eye is one thing. But 11,450 pairs of eyes, 74% of them, women, children, and elderly people, is way too far. Cutting off water from people who are dying of thirst is definitely going too far. It's beyond biblical. It's beyond the Old Testament that. You can't do that at least now that people can actually see on their screens, on their phones, exactly what it is that you are doing. So there is no doubt, surely, in the minds of anyone, even Netanyahu must know that a world pivot has occurred in the last five weeks, so far as public opinion is concerned. But that isn't saving any lives down in Gaza right now. They've gone from saying they would never bomb a hospital, must have been a stray Hamas rocket, to actually attacking in broad daylight every single hospital in Gaza, shooting through the windows, killing patients and doctors, two gynecologists, an obstetrician and a gynecologist, murdered today by Israeli bullets fired through the window of their clinic bombing, not now just the entrances, but setting on fire hospitals that have run out of fuel. There were no dead babies decapitated on October 7th. That much is now true according to official statistics. Only one baby died on October 7th and at this stage, nobody even knows who killed that baby. Whoever killed that baby is guilty of a war crime, is guilty of the gravest possible sin. But one baby killed but not decapitated pales into a very, very pale shade of red compared to the slaughter of thousands upon thousands upon thousands of children, infants, toddlers, suckling babies, babies that never even got the time to 
Sucko. You see, you can't do that in an era where we, and we can all see it happening and expect the consequences in the long term not to be grave, but in the short term. Palestinians are being massacred. There were no beheaded babies, but there were 39 babies cut off from their incubator today in Gaza. Two of them have already died. The others will surely die. Premature babies who needed those incubators to live now have no incubator and are lying wrapped in blankets in a hospital being shelled and rocketed and subject to rapid fire from automatic weapons, even through the window of the ward. These patients, the entire ICU cohort, the entire cohort of everybody in the intensive care unit, of Al-Ahli Hospital is now dead this evening. Everyone! Now, if that's not genocide, you've got a very peculiar idea of what genocide is. So the Arabs and the Muslims are not going to stop them unless Western public opinion can force their leaders into a position akin to that taken by President Macron the West is not going to stop it either. So I've gotten to thinking, what is the end game? Well, it's not yet clear how hard the fighting is going to be inside Gaza. It hasn't actually really started yet because the Israeli ground force attack has deliberately stayed away from the Hamas fighters, the famous tunnels, they haven't gone near them yet. And it may well be, given the extraordinary determination and courage of the Palestinian fighters, that a sufficiently high toll will be taken of the invaders, that they'll find a way to call it off. That's one possibility. Another possibility is that in the next hours, days, this becomes an all-out war in the region, as Israeli officials are indicating on television this evening. An all-out war with Lebanon looks inevitable, they're saying on Israeli TV. And of course, that will be no walk in the park for Israel either, as they know from previous wars with the Lebanese resistance, Hezbollah. And if Hezbollah is under all-out Israeli attack, how can Iran sit that one out? And so that's a second possibility, that this becomes an all-out regional war, which can only involve the superpowers. The United States is already there in the Persian Gulf, in the Eastern Mediterranean, with their aircraft carriers, two of them, and with their warships also alongside them. So that's a second option. But a third option we have to now face is that no one less than Tony Blair himself 
the war criminal, dripping in the blood of a million Iraqis, will be used by Israel to oversee an exodus into the desert of Sinai. Egypt says no, but maybe a price will be agreed. Or even if they continue to say no, if Israel knocks down the Rafah crossing and drives a million and a half or two millions and a half, depending on who's ready to stay and die in Gaza, into the desert of Sinai in Egypt. And Tony Blair gets the job of finding the tents and fattening up the surviving population for what would only be an interregnum because how long before Israel would have to start bombing, shelling and besieging the new camps of Palestinian refugees, this time in Egypt, in Sinai. This doesn't even deserve to be called ethnic cleansing. Ethnic cleansing is an insufficient, insufficiently grave term to use for these circumstances. There's only one word you can use, and it's the most uncomfortable word of them all for the Israelis and also for me, who have for decades avoided this word. What's happening in Gaza is a holocaust. It's a premeditated, all-out, genocidal, crazed assault on captive people with nowhere to run, with nowhere to hide. Like the Nazis, when they put down the uprising of the Warsaw Ghetto, whose people said, we revolt because we cannot breathe. The Palestinians revolted because they could not breathe. And now they are being put down on industrial levels of killing. People with no means to defend themselves are dying. One Palestinian child dies and another two are wounded under Israeli bombardment every 10 minutes. So since I started speaking, two children have been killed and four have been maimed and given the lack of medical services still available. How many of those four will survive? You can do the maths. You can work out that this is no ordinary mowing of the lawn, as Israel always called their previous assaults and invasions of the Gaza Strip. This is a holocaust. And just as the European powers and North American powers turned their back on the Holocaust of the 1930s and 40s. This time they're not turning their back. They're actually fueling 
the perpetrators of that Holocaust with oil, with weapons, with money, with propaganda, with new and ever more ridiculous laws. In Germany, yesterday, it became a crime to use the phrase, stop the genocide. Think about that. In Germany, it is a crime, imprisonable, for saying stop the genocide. Hats off to the millions, tens of millions of marchers yesterday, but unless we can move our governments, and quick, we're entering a dramatically different and new phase of the Palestinian disaster, catastrophe, Nakba. Stay tuned. It's the mother of all talk shows. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Ireland has been a beacon uh, to the entire world in the course, not just of this five weeks, but reaching new heights. Uh, The level of support for Palestine in Ireland has always been extraordinarily high. I went to Dublin with the late President Arafat uh, when Ireland became the first Western country to receive him as a guest. I was there and many in the Irish political class were there. And that's going back to the 1980s, maybe the early 90s, I no longer recall. But it was the first the first Western country that received Arafat was the Republic of Ireland. And partly as a result of Irish peacekeepers and Lebanon and so on, there's always been a a substantial number of people in Ireland sympathetic to the Palestinian cause. But that has now reached a national consensus. Of course, some at the top would prefer to invite the Israeli ambassador to their Ardesh, but they're about to find out quite soon that there ain't no votes in that. And the people I'm talking about don't do anything unless there is votes in it. But the largest party in Ireland, Sinn Féin, largest party north and south, 
has been unequivocal now uh, in its demand that the Israeli ambassador be expelled from the country. And their leader at their Ardesh, Mary Lou MacDonald, made a very powerful speech the other day that everyone should check out. The number of people in Ireland who support Palestine is large, even if in the media and in much of the political class that is not echoed. And Irish cultural figures have played a very big part in that. Tyg Hickey is the celebrated Irish comedian, actor and writer who's been in the news recently for his efforts to draw attention to the madness of the pro-Israel narrative. And Tyg joins us now on the mother of all talk shows. Tyg, thanks very much. I've seen your, uh, how shall I put it, a controversial work. It didn't seem controversial to me at all. Uh, it seemed to me to describe perfectly the lunacy uh, of the Israeli action uh, since October 8th. I'm wondering for you how difficult it is, because there ain't many laughs around right now, brother. Uh, I don't remember, actually, the last time I laughed. How you, how you manage uh, to find humor that can be used to demonstrate a wider and deeper point. First of all, thank you so much for having me. Um, big fan of you, big fan of the show. I uh, I feel like with satire, it's got a role to play in all of this because it does the exact opposite of what we're always told, I think, with a lot of conflicts, but particularly with this conflict, which is that it's uh, it's very complicated. You know, that's I think that's part of the the Zionist propaganda, that it's very complicated, so you and I should stay out of it. And I think satire, what satire does is it does the exact opposite. It kind of brings people in. It kind of tries to strip back what's supposedly too nuanced for the average person to understand. And it simplifies it into a, a little a little analogy or a little allegory. Um, so, for example, in a sketch I did that showed the Western powers uh, greeting the Ukraine at a moment where the Ukraine has been invaded, and uh, it's trying to get the guy out of his house. And he's knocking him back. He's looking for weapons. He's looking for support. And the EU and America are absolutely gushing about it. I feel the Palestinian situation is is very close to that. It's 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 got an awful lot of comparison to that situation. And in my sketch, the Palestine uh, figure is roundly denounced. He's kicked out. He doesn't get anything. And in fact, the uh, Western powers decide that they are going to support the actual oppressor. And that is very close to reality. But I think it's also in a really dark, weird way. It's also kind of funny. So I think like comedians and satirists come into their own in these dark times anyway. I'm personally struggling to find anything funny about what's going on, but I think satire is more than just funny. It's it's hopefully uh, holding a mirror up to nature. And there's a moment happening right now, which you described so eloquently in your in your intro, where the Western powers and everything that we kind of, we feel we stand for in terms of being some kind of paragon of moral virtue, um, it's all crumbling. And I think satire has a huge role to play uh, as it lampoons um, the falling position of the West as this kind of moral paragon or, or, or guide for the world. Satire is difficult. As they said, satire died when Henry Kissinger won the Nobel Peace Prize. It's been murdered many times 
since. Uh, but I, I felt that, uh, that uh, Netanyahu lecturing Macron on models uh, was definitely worthy of your sharp pen, Tyke. Yeah, well, again, it, like that was a brilliant example, but I feel generally the Israeli propaganda machine at the moment, if it wasn't so desperately sad and frustrating, it is also hilarious. Like the way in which they are gaslighting on a kind of a global scale um, is just extraordinary to me. And, and they're kind of insulting our intelligence at this point, I think, you know, like to produce a, a copy of Mein Kampf in Arabic from underneath the bed of one of the children that they've slaughtered. It's like something out of a Chris Morris um, satire. It, it, it's really like it's yeah. very hard to match that level of ludicrousness. And yet they are presenting this as, as if it is a compelling fact. And it's just legitimizing um, the, the war crimes, I think. And I'm sure we'll get to this in a moment, but that has been the, the history of colonialism. You know, it's always that way where you kind of try to monstrify your opponent. You try to, to make them evil with associations with, in this case, Nazism, that they're in some way different to you and I. And, and you need that. You need, if you're going to kill people on an industrial scale, as you said, 10, 11,000 people in four weeks, you can't get away with that unless you turn them into a lesser being than, than you or I. And that's what they're attempting to do. And I think we need to push back against it each and every time you see it, just, just call it out. Well, that's a very good segue because uh, it, it, it leads me perfectly to the question uh, of why is opposition uh, in uh, Ireland to what the Israelis are doing more or less hegemonic, uh, give or take the odd uh, um, uh, top notcher in Fianna Foyle and Fianna Gael? I think there's there's an understanding in in Ireland. I mean, I'd like to actually publicly give you a compliment here now, not just because I'm on your show and you invited me on your show, but like I, I remember seeing you or hearing you talk about the north of Ireland. And I genuinely, it was one of the first times I heard somebody from the UK uh, on UK television describing the north in a nuanced way, you know, without trying to create baddies and goodies, you know, that you had a deep understanding of the fact that that conflict um, is is extremely nuanced. And it's based primarily in colonialism. Um, so I think like the Irish-Palestinian understanding is based on the fact that no matter what the Israeli propaganda machine tries to tell you, this isn't really an overly complicated conflict. It's about land. Primarily, it's about land. It's about settler colonialism. And it's the ever-encroaching, constantly growing um, Israeli incursion into Palestinian land. And if there's any country on earth that would understand that, I feel like it is, it is Ireland. We've also had our land taken away from us. We've also had an attempt for our culture and our, our language and our way of life to be obliterated because the oppressor felt that they were ethnically superior to us. We, we relate to all that. We've also been labeled terrorists. Um, we can also identify with the with the oppressor obfuscating and denying justice. Like friends of mine in the north, they're actually going through that right now. Where, as you know, the legacy bill will mean that people in the north who are victims of state-sponsored murder will will probably never have justice now because the British have have basically locked the 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 files away and never to be seen again, or or on, you know, in twenty or thirty or forty, fifty years time. So, I think there's something about this conflict that. Ireland gets in a way that 
the so-called great European powers, Germany, France and, and the United Kingdom don't get because they've never been the colonised, really. They've never been the oppressed. They've always been the oppressors, so they don't get it. Even right up to the idea of dehumanisation. So we see at the moment, we've even seen in the, the Washington Post that car- that racist cartoon that depicts uh, Palestinians as, again, kind of monsters uh, terrorists with no value on human life, willing to sacrifice their children as human shields. It's straight out of the colonial playbook. Like we used to have, as you well know, Punch magazine, you know, used to depict Irish people as kind of monsters, ape-like. Um, and that again was a means for the British to carry out their atrocities and to legitimize them that we were in some way inferior. So I think we just smell a rat about this whole thing uh, in a way that the rest of Europe probably doesn't. And it's it's solidarity with substance. That's why you see people on the streets. That's why I do what I what I do, because I feel like it's my duty out of a sense of solidarity. It's great to kind of say, oh, yeah, I support Palestine, but you have to be active about it. Like there's a genocide happening right now. And you don't want to be sitting on the sidelines for this. Like I, I my my sense of duty to my Palestinian brothers and sisters uh, and friends would be stronger than my idea my desire to keep a paid partnership with Toyota or whatever, you know? Mm. Well, onto that, uh, the uh, the powers moved against you pretty quickly uh, because of the strength and the, and the popularity, the accuracy of your satire. Uh, you, you felt the hammer coming down on top of you. Tell us what happened and where you've survived, where people can follow you. Yeah, to be fair now, it, it's so I've I've been um, a lot of my videos are removed from TikTok because there's a kind of a campaign to get stuff removed. But I'm very lucky because I seem like it seems like I've got uh, enemies in high places, but I seem to have friends in high places, too, because the videos have since been restored. Um the usual backlash that I get in connection with these videos is like something that I would normally receive anyway in Ireland, because my stuff is always political. And in the south of Ireland, we can be a bit squeamish about anti-colonialism it's kind of weird, like we, you know, the ruling class in the south of Ireland are, are are a little bit more squeamish about taking the mick out of the Brits than actually the Brits are. Like more, most of my following like is in the UK from lefties that are like really open to the idea of anti-imperialist thinking and satire and stuff. But so I'm well used to being censored and, and whatnot, but uh, it's from the sublime to the ridiculous. I mean, like over the course of the last few weeks, uh, somebody purporting to be a Zionist witch put a spell on me. Um, but I've since had that spell undone, undone I think, because a lot of uh, Muslim people reached out and they undid it. Uh, it was interesting about the... So I did the sketch um, depicting the situation as a kind of a, somebody who's been stung by a bee and uh, in order to gain, you know, revenge against the bee, they burn the house down that the bee flies into. So I just thought it was interesting on that, on that, that I, the criticism I got for it was about reducing the attacks on October 7th to a bee sting. But I also reduced what's happening to Palestine and Palestinians, genocide, ethnic cleansing, Holocaust, you described it as. I reduced that to one burnt out house and I didn't get one single complaint. So I just thought it was interesting that there seems to be a hierarchy. uh, There isn't parity of esteem when it comes to uh, taking the mick out of the two communities. One is very quick to jump in as if they're a more venerable group of people than the other. and also, I'd say you've got to look at that sketch in the round as well, that like what I'm actually doing in the sketches, 
I'm trying to take the piss out of the idea that this would be in any way a legitimate response, that you would burn a house down to get revenge over a bee. And I think that's how satire works. Mm. But to to answer your question, I suppose... Well, let, let's, make gonna... a, let's make a... Let's make... Yeah, but let, just... We'll come back to you, but let's make a British-Irish comparison here. Uh, <laughs> the bombing... Uh, the Irish uh, Republican Army's bombing of the... Uh, cavalry in the horse guards uh, parade. The British answer it by leveling every dwelling uh, in uh, in Derry uh, or in West Belfast and slaughtering every man, woman, and child uh, within those houses. That's what has happened in the case of uh, Gaza in in the last five weeks. Uh, and uh, to be fair to the British, what didn't happen uh, when when the IRA bombed bombed the cavalry in the presence of the Queen? Absolutely, I think I, I and I made a similar comparison at the start of this that you know it would be like, as you say, like carpet bombing Belfast um, during one of the IRA attacks on the mainland. And I think we both know the reason that didn't happen and that wouldn't happen is because we're white. Irish people are white and it would never be accepted. And um, though the British might have thought that they were ethnically superior to us throughout the centuries, they've had to put that idea away now. And we're white, we're closer to the Ukrainians. You won't get away with that. But when it comes to brown and black people, the West has proved time and time again that there's a hierarchy of importance and they're way, way down the list. They don't matter. I mean, like just one quick point on the, on the idea of the the terrorist and the freedom fighter thing again, which I think Irish people identify with. Like if an alien landed on Earth at the moment and you presented him with the facts of the matter in Gaza and you said, this one group at the moment are bombing indiscriminately hospitals, schools, uh, they've killed UN workers, they've killed media representatives, they've killed mostly women and children and they're up to 11,000 murders in a month. You would forgive that alien for assuming that that was the terrorist. But actually, we're led to believe by mainstream media that that's the government who are using precision targeting and they're minimizing human casualties. And the terrorists are the guys who broke out of their their concentration camp and committed. And as you said at the start, we still don't know. It's, it's incredible that we still don't know the details of what actually happened on October 7th. And yet there was this ferocious genocidal response to it. I, I, I just think that's un, unfathomable. Um, that you could launch that type of war without the facts of the matter. People are accusing me all the time online, for instance, like just use it, just a quick example of of being an apologist for rape and beheading babies. And as you pointed out at the start of your 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 show, there's no evidence, no evidence for that at all. So it's if again, if it wasn't so horrific, it would be funny. Mm. Yeah, tell us how we can uh, watch your tag. Thank you so much. So yeah, um, I if you just go to tykiki.com, I've uh, got a book out at the moment about it's about my, a memoir about my alcoholism. It's called A Portrait of the Piss Artist as a Young Man. Um, I've got tour dates coming up next <laughs> year. <laughs> uh, but actually, do you know what? The, the main thing I'd like to plug is I've got a fundraiser for Gaza. So if you go to like at Taikiki on Twitter or at Taikiki uh, CML on Instagram, I'm constantly posting about this fundraiser. It's at 11,000 at the moment. I'd love to get it to 20,000. And then I'm donating to uh, the Irish Red Cross who work directly with the Red Crescents on the ground in Gaza. So I'd love some support on that. Fabulous. Take my hat off to you, Taikiki. 
Irish comedian, actor and writer extraordinaire. Thanks very much for joining us. It's been a pleasure meeting you. Let me take a quick break. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Mohammed Hijab, uh, the distinguished scholar, writer, and activist and broadcaster now, uh, has really broken through. In the course of this conflict, he has become one of the most important go-to people for analysis and in order better to understand why this is happening, what's going to happen next. He appeared here only a few weeks ago, and it's turned out to be one of the biggest of all Mother of All Talk Shows interviews. And he's been kind enough to come back uh, so soon. Mohammed Hijab, thank you uh, very much uh, for that. I wanted to speak to you about the, uh, the demonstration uh, in London, well, not just in London, of course, in Manchester, in Glasgow, in Edinburgh, in Cardiff, uh, all over uh, Britain, the land of Balfour, the land where this disaster was authored, the land of Tony Blair, yes, the, la- the land of Rishi Sunak. But my goodness, there are many millions of British people who say no to it all, isn't there? There is, and I was really shocked to see the numbers. I mean, I saw the kind of the bird's eye view from the drones and all that kind of thing, and it was actually quite shocking. I mean, you can see it on the screen now. I've, I don't think I've ever seen a protest that big. I don't know. Have you seen anything like that, George? I mean, have, have you seen anything? You've been more active than I have. Mm, well, uh, since the Iraq war, uh, there hasn't yeah. been a bigger one, and that was up there in the top three uh, in yeah. all of British history. Yeah quite a remarkable thing in the middle of November. Absolutely unbelievable. And uh, I mean, I have to say, I'm very, very proud of the British people. And it, this shows you where, really where, where the British people are at in terms of believing where they are in this conflict. They cannot, I mean, there's, it's, it's a good sign, I think. It's a really good sign to show that the British public cannot see images like they have been seeing on social media, on the internet, of young children being brutalized, being killed. Um, some really horrendous images. I'm sure you've seen them as well. You've been sharing them on X, and I've been retweeting some of the things that you've been putting. Unbelievable, really. I, I, it's changed the game. I can't even live in the same way anymore, uh, looking at those images. You know, I saw one particular image of a, of a, of a sister and a brother, and the sister is... Uh, coming out of the rubble and she's speaking to the brother and she's giving him encouragement and she won't move on without without him. It was absolutely devastating, absolutely devastating to watch. And the kind of justifications that are being put forward for this kind of brutalization is absolutely shocking, George. I can't believe it. Uh, Netanyahu said in just the last hour, I, I just saw the video, uh, he, he told the Arab leaders... Uh, that uh, they have to do only one thing to preserve their own interests, and that is to remain silent. Uh, It's a deeply humiliating order, uh, but it's an order uh, that is likely to be obeyed by most of them. That's very hard to bear uh, for a Muslim scholar, isn't it? 
Absolutely is, and it's it's sad to see. And unfortunately, now as you know, we have regimes that are not, in fact, um, independent. They're they're not uh, representative. Uh, of the populaces of those particular countries, and to be fair to those particular countries, we have seen mass protests in those in those countries in Jordan, uh, where I'm originally from, from Egypt, uh, all over the uh, Muslim world uh, in Pakistan. We have seen mass protests. Obviously, in Turkey as well, we've seen mass protests. People taking to the streets and and really showing their concern as well. So it's only a matter of time until, and that's what people need to realize that no matter what the political elites say, there's only so much time until there's a critical mass and the political elites, I'm sorry to say, uh, might not be as relevant as they think they are. And, and, and those things, um, if the situation continues, Israel needs to know, and so does the United States of America, that their interest will be uh, something that nobody can protect. Tell me what you think of my three scenarios that I outlined at the beginning, uh, Mohammed. Uh, one is yeah. that, um, notwithstanding all the bombing, that the uh, up-close and personal uh, man-to-man combat in the alleyways, in the rubble, uh, begins to prove too expensive to uh, the Israeli armed forces and pressure on Netanyahu gets him to call it off. Second scenario, uh, that it becomes uh, a wider war uh, with all-out war uh, between Israel and other Arab countries, principally Lebanon, but Syria would uh, undoubtedly quickly uh, become subsumed in that, uh, with the possibility that faraway countries like Iran would then be drawn in. And the third scenario is that Netanyahu wins in the absence of any countervailing force. He does smash open the gates of Rafa, and he does create an exodus into the Sinai Desert of millions of people, whether Egypt likes it or not. Um, How do you weigh those three possibilities? Right, so that's a really good question. So look, this is what this is what I think. I think the third scenario that you just laid out is very, very unlikely. Um, I've been watching very closely the Egyptian news and um, and looking at the bot the micro expressions and the body language and psychology um, of the Egyptian politicians, and it does not seem the case that they will uh, uh, open up the Rafah border because I think doing that would, for them, it would complete com- uh, create complete instability for their regimes. And that is something I don't think they can be uh, bribed um, into changing their opinion on. So that's, unless they are blackmailed or there's military action, that's a different uh, situation. I think that's what it would take. In terms of the first and second scenarios, look, I mean, in terms of winning, first of all, winning a war, what does it mean to win a war? So William Martel mentions that. And this is, I think, in the international relations literature, the most, probably the most respected or the most prominent um, definition that winning a war is uh, effectively meeting your political objectives. The political objectives that Israel has set for itself right now is uh, to destroy and nullify and annihilate Hamas. Now, the problem with that objective is that Hamas is not just a group of people, 30 or 50,000 fighters. Hamas is effectively an ideology. And Elon Musk said it correctly when he said that when you kill one Hamas, you create another. 
And as you see, um, you know, people that are have seen their own children, as we've started off this discussion by saying, or their own siblings being killed, are more likely to join Hamas, according to all theories um, of this kind of um, political theories and psychological theories than ever before. So I think the objective that they've set for themselves uh, should have been thought more closely about because now they've made it impossible for themselves. Beating Hamas is it's almost an impossible. It's like catching a ghost, effectively, which is ironically what they were taught, what they said when they were fighting Hamas on the ground. Which is the second thing is that their ground incursion, and I've been cl- following following that closely as well, especially on Al Jazeera Arabic. And there is a particular analyst in the Arabic language called uh, Faiz of Dawadi, um, who is brilliant, and he's been uh, analysing uh, what's happening. It doesn't seem that they're advancing. In fact, I mean, we've just looked at the, I mean, we're looking at Israeli figures now. If you look at the Israeli figures, not even the Hamas figures or the or anything else, just looking at Israeli figures, the IDF recently came on, uh, actually, as reported by The Guardian, and said that, quote unquote, dozens of Hamas fighters have been killed. Now, just to think about that for a second, according to their own figures from, from the 7th of October, almost 400 IDF people have been killed, almost 400 of them and 340 of them by Hamas. Now, what does that mean? It means that pound for pound, there have been more IDF that have been killed by Hamas than Hamas by IDF, by the admission and by the numbers of the IDF. Now, that's pretty shocking statistics, considering that the ratio of civilian or combatant to non-combatant death uh, that... uh, IDF has subjected the population to is exactly 100 to 1, or more than that, in fact, because uh, there's 10,000 people that have been killed. And if we are liberal with our estimate, we say 100 people from Hamas are killed according to the IDF, then that's literally 1%, which is uh, 100 to 1 ratio, which is uh, no longer collateral damage. It cannot be 100 to 1 ratio, civilian to uh, to combatant uh, ratio cannot be said to be collateral damage uh, anymore. So having said all these things, I, I, d- I don't think that the Israeli forces are that good on the ground. And you you know this very well because you, and I was watching closely when I was still a boy in school, but you, you, you covered very well and very strongly, very diligently, very accurately, um, the the conflict in 2006 with Lebanon. And then I remember you very closely saying, because it was such a memorable uh, thing that you said to the news anchor, that they're being whooped on the ground or they're being beaten on the ground. And that was by Hezbollah in 2006. And they were being beaten by 2006. And if you, if you consider the military record of Israel of seven wars, at least three of them could be said to be defeats. Two of them... Uh, in recent times on the ground, and 2006 being one of them. And in 2000, when they left southern Lebanon uh, after the resistance as well there, that could be said to be a defeat because they did not fulfill their military objectives and they had to leave a particular place where they were. So if you consider Israel's record like an MMA fighter or a boxer, if you consider their record on the ground, they have a very poor record on the ground. And and so it doesn't seem, I think... In, on weight of all that we've just said that based on, on the historical precedent and what we what we know, it seems that the, the following is going to happen, that they're going to continue. This is going to be very expensive for them. Either, the, as normal Finkelstein said, that they're going to take the, the northern part of Gaza and they create a security council there. That's a possibility. And then that can be said to be some kind of a victory. Uh, for them, which it would be to some extent, because some of their objective has been met, but it wouldn't be a complete victory compared to what they were, um, as per what they wanted it to be. Or 
they could the biggest victory which I think would be a victory for them would be if the Rafah border opened and they could complete Nakba and there is no more Gaza and everyone leaves and they, they remove or ethnically cleanse or do whatever they want with the Gaza population that would be for them the, probably the greatest victory they can imagine I don't think that's going to happen either I don't think that the international community can allow that to happen um, or would allow that to happen or even that America would allow them to do that uh, on balance of probabilities either that they're going to take the north of Gaza a lot of which is uninhabitable land, what they call an Arab mantiqa to sifr, literally a place where it's uninhabited, unarable land, and people are not using it, or that they're going to be uh, repelled. I think these are the two uh, possibilities, and that they'll probably cap it off at 20,000 civilians. Because I, I, at this point, there is... Um, th- there is reason to believe that the intention of the IDF, obviously, is to kill as many civilians as possible, as per what they've said themselves, like Daniel Hagari, Gottlieb, and uh, w- one of the guys who got suspended, I forget his name, but who said nuking the place. There's clear intention there that's coming out. So for them, I think in their mind, killing civilians is a victory. Killing children for them is a victory. They've got exactly the terrorist mentality on this matter. So uh, but that wouldn't be a victory, but it could be enough to placate uh, kind of like uh, some members or some aspects or some segments of the Israeli populace. These are the two biggest possibilities, either that the north part of Gaza will be taken, as Finkelstein says, as a security council, or that they'll be repelled altogether, which would be one of the biggest losses, actually, um, in uh, in modern times, or probably in their history, if that happens. Well, uh, the only... I, I think that's a masterful summary uh, the only thing I'd say, nobody ever lost money betting on what the international community would stand up for. Uh, so uh, <clears throat> let's hope uh, that we don't see Tony Blair uh, uh, riding on his white charger in Sinai as the humanitarian coordinator of a new <clears throat> Gaza in the desert. Mohammed Hijab, you're a gentleman and definitely a scholar. Thank you for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. Appreciate that. Bryce Green of the United Nations and the mother of all talk shows has uh, been one of the trailblazers in the campaign for fair reporting, for honest reporting in the United States. He highlights some of the most egregious atrocities against the English language, against logic and reason, against the interests of the United States of America. He did it on the Nord Stream issue, and he's doing it now on the Middle East conflict. And I'm glad to say he's doing it here on the mother of all talk shows. Bryce, I'll never forget the sight of you lecturing the UN uh, uh, top brass, uh, but uh, maybe uh, we'll come back to that. I wanted to... uh, touch first with you on the Nord Stream uh, issue. Uh, we've, we've now found the culprit, apparently. Uh, President Zelensky didn't know anything about it. Neither did President Biden know anything about it. It was all done by some fellow who looked as if he might have some difficulty uh, getting across a crowded room, but he apparently got down and deep and blew up the Nord Stream. Tell us about this development, please. Right. Well, the recent reporting on the Nord Stream attack uh, comes from the Washington Post, and they're blaming a Ukrainian official uh, named Shravinsky, 
who uh, you know has been an, a, an outspoken critic of the Zelensky administration and is currently under arrest uh, for uh, some charges relating to some earlier treason. Um, but there are a lot of problems with this report. Um, as I'm sure a lot of your listeners have been following, this story has gone uh, all sorts of different ways. Initially, reports blamed Russia and uh, you know New York Times, Washington Post, and all the establishment media who uh, claim to be arbiters of truth. They just blamed Russia without any evidence. Um, and then you had uh, you know silence after it became clear that there was no real motive for Russia to do it, and uh, there was no real uh, evidence to back it up. Uh, but later on, you had Seymour Hersh, a veteran reporter from the United States, uh, write a report blaming Joe Biden uh, and the Americans for having a direct hand in blowing up the pipeline. And shortly after that, um, you then had these reports that the Washington Post is now promoting uh, about a uh, a group of pro-Ukrainian nationals who weren't necessarily connected to Zelensky, who used a yacht to blow up the pipeline. Uh, now, there are a lot of conflicting facts and outstanding facts, but uh, what the core of what I told the United Nations was that regardless of whether or not it was American divers, as according to Seymour Hersh, or whether or not it was Ukrainian divers, uh, according to uh, other media reports, uh, the United States still bears primary responsibility because, as was reported here in the West by uh, journalist James Bamford, uh, the U.S. has the uh, that ocean wired up to high heaven with acoustic sensors that are able to sense uh, which ships go where and where the ships came from. Uh, and the U.S. almost certainly had immediate knowledge of which ship was around and who was uh, the actual culprit of the pipelines. So regardless of whether or not Hirsch was correct and whether regardless of whether or not this Washington Post story is correct, the current Washington Post story leaves out the crucial fact that the United States supported the pipeline's destruction, had yearned for the pipeline's destruction, celebrated it, and almost certainly had immediate knowledge of who was responsible, which means they covered it up. Uh, and so, again, what I told the UN was it doesn't matter whether or not it was Ukrainian people now uh, who are being blamed for it or whether or not it was the, directly the U.S. Uh, the end result is the exact same. Uh, but that part, that last part, has been completely omitted from the current reporting. Uh, now we see uh, as public opinion turns on Ukraine and the Ukrainian war, uh, as Zelensky is worried that Israel is becoming a distraction for Ukraine, you're starting to see a lot of the truth about what's really going on in that conflict start to come out. And now you're seeing uh, uh, Biden officials start to pressure Ukraine for peace, something they could have done for a long time. But this Nord Stream story solely blaming Ukraine and ignoring the culpability of the United States. Well, that's part of that. That's part of this pushing Ukraine under the bus, blaming all the problems on internal problems within Ukraine and washing the United States hand of the problems when in reality, everything from the start of this war to the Nord Stream pipeline bombing to the failed counteroffensive has been the U.S. and their policy. Uh, there's no getting around that, but the American media seems to have no ease uh, distorting that reality. Well, of course, uh, it will not be possible to uh, wash the hands of the blood in Gaza. All the perfumes of Arabia will not extinguish that damned spot. Uh, the uh, culpability of the American government in this case is complete. And yet we have a Blinken, and uh, I haven't heard Biden say it, but I've heard Blinken say it, 
that uh, too many people are dying. How many people have to die before the U.S. turns off the taps, in your view? Well, that's just the thing. Um, you can see all these claims from U.S. officials and all these reports in the U.S. media talking about uh, how the U.S. is dismayed at the way Israel's conducting itself and how uh, they just want a humanitarian pause to stop the uh, high civilian death toll. Uh, but if you look at their actions, their actions speak louder than their words, and their actions say Israel has a blank check to keep doing whatever they want. Uh, remember, Israel... Uh, receives $4 billion a year from the American empire. Uh, and just recently, we passed another $14 billion. That was the first thing we did after we got a new Speaker of the House. Uh, and so Israel isn't really in a position to say no to uh, America when we say you shouldn't uh, advance into Gaza or you shouldn't be blowing up hospitals or maybe you should go ahead and start to think about ending the occupation. Uh, all of these things are within the U.S.'s control. And so these, you know, these false tears of these civilian casualties by these Biden administration officials, uh, Biden administration officials, it should be understood as just that. Uh, it's just uh, false care. They don't care about these people. If they cared, they would exercise their abilities, which they do have, uh, to get Israel to stop the bombing completely, to call for a ceasefire, to uh, take steps to ease the blockade, which is the root of the violence that happened on October 7th to end the occupation, which is the root of all the violence that happens within Israel. Uh, everyone understands that, but no one seems to act on it. And again, the media are complicit in allowing this vision, uh, this, this image of uh, an administration who is doing what they can to stop Israel, but you know they just can't restrain their closest ally. That's it, all nonsense, and it should be dismissed. The uh, signs are that the public uh, are not with the political class on this. 66% of people want a ceasefire now in the U.S. 80% of Democratic Party voters want a ceasefire uh, in the U.S. But the three main candidates uh, running for president next year, uh, Biden, Trump, and Kennedy, are all absolutely gung-ho for Bibi Netanyahu. How did that happen, Bryce? Well, over the years, uh, as many Congress people, Hill staffers, uh, and other people who work in D.C. will tell you, the Israel lobby has been one of the most powerful forces in American politics for uh, years and years and years, uh, at least since 1967, maybe uh, somewhat longer. Uh, but the Israel lobby, uh, they are able to uh, to gain the support of Congress people by the sheer force of their donations alone. They're able to muster support for candidates who support their worldview, and they're able to uh, muster support against those same candidates should they go against what uh, the Israel lobby dictates. And, you know, this lobby would have significant power by itself, but uh, it's getting it's gotten a major boost by the fact that Israel aligns with some of the most hawkish elements in the American imperial establishment. Um, Israel has been helping the United States uh, achieve its goals in the Middle East. They helped with uh, Syria. They were one of the major people pushing for the invasion of Iraq. Um, these hawks are empowered by Israel, and Israel is empowered by these hawks. So it's a virtuous circle where, of course, Israel is the junior partner, uh, but uh, the American empire benefits uh, from Israel. Uh, of course, none of the rest of the world benefits. The Middle East doesn't benefit. 
the people in Palestine don't benefit. Even Israelis themselves and American individuals themselves don't benefit from this uh, this alliance and this uh, unconditional support. Uh, but that doesn't matter. The people with the decision-making power uh, are beholden to the interests that perpetuate uh, the worst aspects of the Americans and the Israelis. And so until that changes, or until there's significant pushback against that, there won't really be any change in America's disposition towards the state of Israel. Uh, right now, if you look at Congress, uh, there has only been, to my knowledge, one senator to actually call for a ceasefire wow. and only a handful of Congress wow. people. Uh, only a very small number, like fewer than a dozen. Uh, this despite, as you said, 66% of the American public supporting a ceasefire. So there's a major disconnect between, uh, you know, as with many issues, a major disconnect between the ruling class, the people in Congress, the decision makers, and the general public, the people who are affected by the decisions made at this level. And, and the situation in Palestine is no different. Uh, they don't care that most of the public doesn't support the fact that American bombs are being dropped on hospitals, are being used to murder civilians, that American drones are hovering around helping the Israeli military conduct their offensive. The majority of Americans are skeptical of that unconditional support, and the majority of Americans will like a ceasefire. Uh, but the ruling class, as I said, uh, they don't care. Finally, Bryce, uh, I know that uh, prediction makes fools of us all, but we are now in uh, um, the season, uh, the election season, the primary season first, and then the presidential election, uh, more or less exactly a year from now. Uh, is Joe Biden really going to go for the Democratic nomination? Will Donald Trump actually make it to the starting gate? And whatever happened to Robert F. Kennedy Jr.? Uh, well, uh, like you said, I, I, it's hard to look into my crystal ball and tell you exact answers. Um, but it looks like uh, uh, the Democratic Party is in shambles. They understand that Joe Biden is uh, deeply unpopular and that unpopularity is growing dramatically as we support the slaughter in Gaza. Uh, and then you have the uh, the inability or the the absence of any serious primary challenge. They're deliberately rigging the process so that no one can challenge him but they understand that their top candidate is not popular. So what do you make of this? Well, it doesn't seem like the Democratic Party cares as much about winning as they do maintaining their own power and their own constituency. We saw this in 2016 with Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders, who by the way, has still not called for a ceasefire, uh, but Bernie Sanders was clearly the more popular candidate in 2016. And polls clearly showed him winning over Trump in 2016. But the party establishment went for Hillary Clinton, who uh, lost. Uh, but they didn't seem to care about that. They didn't. That didn't seem to uh, cause any sort of reflection or self-discovery about why this happened. No, they understood why it happened. They hate their people more than they hate the Republicans, and they just want to maintain their own power. Uh, and Republicans, uh, you know, it's a a clown show as per usual. Uh, but uh, and there's a, a pretty big question whether or not Trump's going to successfully go to the finish line, as you say, and be on the ballot. Uh, so it's really up in the air. But uh, again, he has a wide base of support and uh, there's doesn't seem to be any reason that that support is going to disappear anytime soon, barring some cat catastrophe for Trump. Um, but and then you have Robert F. Kennedy, 
who is running as an anti-establishment candidate, but on the major issue of today, he's even more hawkish in some ways than both of the major party establishments. And so you have this moment where it does look like he has a shot uh, at the presidency. I don't know how big that shot is, but it seems bigger than any third party candidate in uh, at least my lifetime and as far as I've seen. But uh, he's losing an opportunity to differentiate himself from the establishment when it comes to Israel. And, uh, you know, there are a lot of issues which I strongly agree with uh, on RFK Jr., which uh, include, uh, you know, taking on uh, uh, the regulatory capture by major corporations and uh, the uh, rampant uh, lawlessness of our intelligence community. Uh, but there are reasons to suspect that his campaign might be uh, uh, unsuited to the task of taking on one of the major lobbies in America, the Israel lobby. Uh, and so it's a very difficult situation for American politics. Uh, and I try to you know, keep myself sane by not paying too much attention to the horse race and focusing more on local organizing where I know I can have a serious impact. Um, but uh, it's it's weird over here, George, and uh, uh, people trying to make sense of it, uh, they have their work cut out for them. It's weird over here too. Bryce Green, thanks very much indeed for joining us. Another peerless tour of the horizon. Is Netanyahu planning to create Israel from the river to the sea? Well, 25,555 of you voted. And here are the results. On Telegram, 97% say yes. On Twitter, 92% say yes. On the YouTube community poll, 93% say yes. And on the YouTube stream, 95% say yes. Pretty overwhelming indeed. Uh, Billy is in Somerset in England. Let's hear from him. Go ahead, Billy. Hi, George. I'm a first-time caller. I started listening to your show a few weeks ago when all this first started, and I just wanted to say uh, thank you for all you've done speaking up about what is really happening right now in Palestine and being the voice of reason. Thank you. Now, I myself wouldn't say I was particularly a left-wing individual, but by no means, but, but by no means would I be able to sleep at night if I was standing with Israel. This is about humanity, and at the end of the day, each and every one of us has a decision to make, whether or not we want to be on the right or wrong side of history. And I look at most of the mainstream media outlets, and I see channels like GB News and Talk TV spouting utter lies about what is happening right now with regards to the conflict. And people like Nigel Farage, who for a very long time, you know, I've I was like a big fan of him and, uh, you know, seeing him standing so firmly with Israel and spreading all this pro-Israeli, pro-Zionist, anti-Palestinian propaganda has just made me completely rethink everything. Like, you know, my whole, all my sort of political allegiances and who, who I should be with. And uh, I now feel sort of politically homeless. And I know that... You know, morally, I'm, I'm not. And morally, I stand firmly, firmly with the people of Palestine. What a beautiful call, uh, Billy, and brilliantly observed. Uh, I can only imagine uh, that uh, Farage and Tice and all of the, and Fox, all of these other uh, uh, fighters against the establishment and the prevailing narrative and the 
uh, securocratic state which has never done arresting Fox uh, and uh, the big censors on big tech and so on. Overnight, not overnight, in a flick of a switch, all of them became rabid attack dogs. Uh, and uh, I can only assume uh, that it's uh, for, uh, for the purpose of harvesting those people who oppose the presence in our country of people of color, oppose the presence in our country of Muslims. I, it's impossible for me to separate uh, the issues of race and religion from this incredible vault farce, uh, which uh, the right on British politics, the so-called libertarian right in British politics has made. It's impossible for me to separate these two things because no other logical conclusion is possible in these circumstances. The logic of all that had gone before commanded otherwise, but they didn't take the otherwise, they took the other. And they're dead to me now. They are finished for me now. And I also think that they have made a very big political mistake in the medium term because uh, the first one now will later be last. The last one now will later be first. The wheel is still spinning and it's not going to provide the winnings that I presume they imagined uh, that it would. Thanks for that call. An email from Ian. Uh, why don't Turkey stop the oil going to Israel? Why haven't they, Ian, in Burgess Hill? I wish I knew the answer to that, Ian, uh, but I don't. Let's see if Ahmed in Lebanon does. Ahmed, welcome to the show. What would you like to say? Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Galloway. And thank you so much for everything you've been doing for everyone, especially in Gaza right now. Thank you. Thank I've, you I've been getting... Yeah, I've been getting some uh, like urgent news, uh, some WhatsApp groups, uh, news WhatsApp groups from Lebanon and stuff. And uh, we've been hearing that uh, some Israeli uh, officials have been threatening us, telling us to leave uh, the south, telling us to uh, get ready for bombardment and so on and so forth. And, uh, you know... <laughs> Do you think that 2006 have taught them what type of people the Lebanese are? Uh, we're we're very we're very close to the Gazan people. We're very stubborn, <laughs> and you know there. I mean, honestly, some people here, sir, are honestly praying that they're that stupid. Honestly, like if if they really want the war with Lebanon, I mean. Oof, I, I, I don't even know. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, Ahmed, uh, the leaflets that were supposedly dropped uh, in southern Lebanon telling everyone to leave and move to the north have been revealed to be fake, uh, fake news. No such leaflets have been dropped. Indeed, no Israeli aircraft would dare uh, to fly low enough to do that uh, over and slow enough over uh, Lebanon to do that. Uh, 
because unlike the Palestinians in Gaza, uh, the Lebanese have the means to destroy aircraft uh, over their uh, territory. There are some reports uh, of uh, Hezbollah rockets landing in Haifa, once a great Palestinian city, an Arab city from which scores of thousands of people were ethnically cleansed back in 1948. Uh, if that is true, uh, then it's the furthest uh, that the uh, Hezbollah response to Israeli bombardment and, and massacre uh, has come. Uh, in which case, the Israeli official minister who said on television tonight that war with uh, Lebanon looks inevitable, uh, that may come to pass. And if it comes to pass, uh, it will not be easy to control uh, the course of that war for the reasons that I have outlined earlier. Uh, if, uh, if Hezbollah is winning in that war, then the United States uh, will have to uh, intervene from its aircraft carriers and warships in the Eastern Mediterranean. If the United States intervenes, uh, then uh, it seems unlikely that Iran will be able to remain silent. Or other uh, friends of Iran, friends of Hezbollah uh, throughout the region. Uh, if Syria is attacked by the United States or Israel, I don't think I have to remind you, but let me remind others that the Syrian Arab Republic for more than 50 years has been a military political ally of Russia. And Russia has a treaty obligation uh, to defend the territorial integrity and independence of Syria. And if Syria is attacked by the United States, by Israel, Russia too will not be able to stay out of the war. And therefore, we'll have a prospect uh, rolling out in front of us of war throughout the region leading to war throughout the world. Stakes are high. Desmond sends an email, breaking report on Al-Quds Telegram channel. U.S. troops are embedded with the Israeli Defense Force in Gaza. That comes from Des in Manchester. Thanks, Des, for that. Thanks, all of you, for watching this evening. I think it's been a cracking show myself. And if you agree, the good news is on Wednesday at the slightly late time of 9 p.m., UK. So uh, do come uh, on Wednesday. God knows what the developments will be between now and then. Follow me on Twitter. Join the 600,000. Join the 800,000 plus on Facebook. Join the 100,000 plus on Instagram. And stay in touch. Good night.